0: Morning New Hope family, glad to be with you today. I've thought about Will a lot yesterday. Lori and I were privileged to be able to go to Washington DC yesterday with some friends and stand at the steps of the Supreme Court building. And I thought about Will, how many times he's been there and representing Christians around the country on behalf of our church, and and many times that he stood there and goes to the Capitol building, and then this morning he's out in the atrium, so you'll get a chance to visit with him afterwards. So I'm going to compel you to do that, visit with one of our missionaries. It's it's a person that you support, and it'd be great for you to be able to put a face with the name and, and give him a greeting, and his wife Marilyn is back there as well. So it would be my privilege to be able to pray with you about some of the things going on in our country right now. Before I do that, I wanna point you to a little sticker that we're giving out and we've got them in the atrium back there and in the office and it's an American flag with the words pray right in there, they're free. You can take them, I've got one on my truck, you can put them on your car and just reminding people as you drive past them to be praying for our nation. Our nation needs prayer right now, right? So I I found uh, great comfort in being able to be part of 80,000 people yesterday on the mall in Washington and seeing that many people join together in prayer for our nation. But as great as that was and as refreshing as that was, there's nothing like hearing 80,000 people sing and hearing it bounce off the Lincoln Monument and coming back at you. And it was reminding me of this morning when Michael was leading us through worship as well. We serve a God worthy of our praise, right? worthy of our worship, worthy of our honor, and so while I compel people to make sure you get out and vote, actually exercise your privilege, it means nothing if our nation doesn't turn back to God, if our nation doesn't follow after Jesus as its Savior, and so we compel people even more so to pray, to be praying for our nation, all the things that are going on, all the unrest that we're experiencing. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the Democratic side or on the Republican side, it matters not. The reality is we have to come to this place where we actually acknowledge God as our leader, as our Savior, as our judge, as the one who provides for us. So I'm going to pray with you right now with that in mind as well as the passage we're about to look at. Would you join me in that? Would you join me in praying together for our nation and for ourselves as we prepare our hearts to study God's word? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of living in the United States of America and for being able to be here this morning. For our friends who are watching from home and those who are personally in this auditorium, God, I pray that you put us in this place where we're willing to acknowledge that this nation amounts to nothing if it weren't for you. You are the one who laid the foundation for us, and you, will, you are the one who will see us through difficult times. So we come before you, and we ask that you would heal the division, that you would bring unity to this nation. God, we pray specifically that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would turn this nation to you, and and where there is unrest, God, that you would bring rest. Where there is diversity, you would bring unity. God, you you are a unifying God. God. So we ask for you to accomplish your purposes through Jesus Christ, accomplish it through us as followers of Christ, that we would represent the kingdom well. Where harsh words are spoken, God, let us be the ones to speak peace. Father, let us bring a tone of peace when there's harshness. We turn our attention now, Father, to this word that we're about to look at, in Luke 16 and as, as prickly as it is and as uncomfortable it is and as hard as it is to understand, you spoke it for a reason and you chose this timing for it to be in the parable series. So we turn our attention to it and we want to give our, our earnest focus to it, Father, that we wouldn't drift off or, or be distracted, but rather we would be honed in on what you want us to pick up from it. So God, sharpen our minds right now Give us the dedication of attention to your word. And as a result, Father, that you would move us in the spirit to correct us where we need to be corrected, where we need to take action, God. Show us how to take action. We pray for your blessing now on the studying of your word. And we ask for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. I'm gonna ask you to go to Luke chapter 16 if you happen to have a Bible with you. And if you don't, you're out of luck this morning because the words won't be up on the screen. The computer system that failed this morning that lost the lyrics for the songs is the same one that puts the verses up. Well, they are able to get the song portion up, but the actual words for the verses aren't up. So I'm gonna read it to you. We're gonna do it like old school, okay? You're just gonna have to hear it. And if you have it electronically, maybe you have it on your phone or you have a hard copy with you, or maybe you have Luke 16 memorized. Anybody have that down? How cool would that be? You could get up here and teach if that's the case. Okay, so Luke chapter 16, I ask you to turn there, and it's a remarkable setting because Jesus starts talking about money. One of the things I hear from people, especially who are new to New Hope, is this question. How come you guys never talk about money here, right? We don't take an offering in the service, and so people assume that we don't talk about money, and we do talk about money here if you're new to New Hope, and we have offering boxes in the back, and that's how we do our giving, but we don't take an actual offering in the service. Don't come to the conclusion that New Hope doesn't talk about money, especially as it comes up in the passages that we're working through, and this happens to be one of those because Jesus is talking about money here. And so we need to get our mind around the framework of how he's presenting this, especially living in modern America, because the contrast between us and first century Israel is so vast, we need to make sure we're understanding this in context. So let's give some context to the world that we live in right now. The average American home earns about $62,000 a year, and that's across the whole nation as an average, and that's as of 2018. It's probably spiked up a little bit since then, I think it was closer to six, uh, 63000 in 2019. So I'm, get, I'm just giving you, according to Forbes, uh, 2018, about $62,000 a year, the average American household. Now, I'm here to tell you this morning that my great-grandparents and my grandparents would have thought that was an enormous sum of money. They they would have thought, how in the world could anybody spend that much money? Because that's not the world they came from. Yet in our world today, in 2020, the average American household thinks that unless you earn $100,000 a year, you're not doing well. If you don't have $100,000 a year in income, the average American thinks you're not very successful. You're not in the rich category. Let's carry that framework into what Jesus is talking about here in this particular parable. And if you're new, let me set you up on what's going on. For months, we've been seeing in the parables that Jesus is talking about how we're supposed to see the kingdom of God, how we're supposed to understand eternity, how we're supposed to understand ourselves in relation to God. And most importantly for this morning, He wants us to understand his expectations of us. So this parable, among all others, actually goes into that issue. Because among teachers and theologians, they would say, this parable here that you're about to look at in Luke 16, it is known as the hardest to interpret because of some of the things that Jesus says here. And it takes significant research and study on your part. If you've got a pen or paper with you, you're going to want to write some things down. Maybe you didn't grab the notes when you came in this morning. If you're watching online, this is a good time to download so that you have those notes. And if you want, get up during the service and go back and grab a set of those notes. It may really help you and it give you something to write on. Jesus in Luke 16 is still making his way towards Jerusalem. And he's in the final months of his life. And you've seen him along the way in each of these parables as he's dialoguing with the Pharisees. He's calling them out on issues about the things that God really values. Well, he's almost to Jerusalem by the time you get to Luke 16. And the Pharisees are still a major component of the environment. He's called them hypercritical, and he's exposed them, and he's shown them for what they are. Even though they look like they're really holy, God says, no, you're just full of greed. That holy thing you've got on you is a mask. It's fake. That's not what's really going on underneath. And so he calls them out for their greed issues. But as you come into Luke 16, what you're going to find is he's actually addressing the disciples. He's turned his attention away from the Pharisees. Uh, We would say in 2020, who's his disciples today? Well, that's you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So he's addressing this parable specifically to you this morning. If you name the name of Jesus, you understand he's your way of salvation. He's addressing you and he's warning us about being asleep at the switch when it comes to using our earthly resources wisely. Understand that when he's speaking to them, he's speaking to us, we are his disciples and to you he wants you to understand how to use the realm of wealth and finances according to kingdom purposes. So that sets us up for this parable. Now, we would agree as you come into a parable like this, immediately it's going to appear like he's talking about a business, and he is. And as in any business, a poor manager raises concerns. And if a poor manager raises concerns, a crooked manager downright sets off all the warning bells, and that's what's going on in this story. Now this particular manager apparently had a very large agricultural operation that he oversaw and he works for a wealthy landowner who lives apparently separated away from the farm. He lives in the city, but he comes to the farm and checks on his operation and and reviews the books and he's heard some things about his manager. So go with me to verse 1, Luke 16. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Verse 2, and he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So we've got a rich man, and as the story unfolds, he's very, very rich. And we know that because he's got multiple enterprises. And there's lots of people who owe him debts. They owe him large amounts of money. And there appear to be a line of debtors And verse 5 indicates, it's an ongoing verb, it indicates that the line is stretching out the door. There's people lined up to come in and see him in order to take care of their debts. It was very common in the first century in the ancient world for wealthy landowners to hire managers and put them in place to run the operation, and they would live distant, and then they would come occasionally and check on their properties. So they've got an overseer who's managing their estate. Well, Jesus uses this particular word that you can't see on the screen this morning. It's a Greek word, but you can see it if you have the notes this morning, and it's the word okonomos. And it actually means the person who is in middle management. So here's what he's done. This word that Jesus uses takes together the word law and house. He's got the law of the house, the law over the estate. You put those two together and you have that particular Greek word. So he's an overseer who's employed in fiscal management over the house. He's been delegated to oversee this property for the actual owner. So he's managing not only the land, he's managing the crops. He's managing the utensils that work the land. He's managing all the debt. He's managing all the income and all the outgo. He even manages the food for the employees who work on the property. He manages their clothing and their housing. If we were to put it in modern day context in 2020, we would say this is a chief financial officer combined with a chief operations officer, a CFO and a COO who's overseeing a very, very large estate. But there's some things that have been said about him. Even though he's a very important guy with huge responsibility and with a lot of authority, he's been accused of wasting and misusing the landowner's resources. So he's been confronted What is this? What am I hearing about you? It's not good. Apparently, the owner hears some pretty severe things because the word reported that's used there is actually the word diablo. It's where we get the word diabolical from, devious things. I hear devious, treacherous things about you, and the slander apparently matches the description because he wants to dismiss him. So the next word that he uses, Jesus uses this word "dyscoporizo," and it actually means it's the same word that was used for the the uh, prodigal son last time when we were in the story. Someone who squanders and wastes, who scatters abroad freely. Apparently, he's been cooking the books and he's been wasting money. And the nature of his job as a money manager makes it really easy for him to misappropriate funds. Well, the accusations apparently are well founded because he says to him, "You're fired." Clean out your desk. You've got two weeks, though. Now who would do that? Why would he give him two weeks after he's fired him? Because he wants him to prepare a personal financial accounting for all that he's done. So apparently the owner of the property, he doesn't have a business management degree, because you don't want to fire somebody and then have them go back on the job for two weeks. What are they going to do? Well, in this case, he's going to do exactly what most people do, which is they go in with a vendetta. Like, I'm going to go in and get what I can for myself. I have a goal in mind, and that's exactly what he does. If you fire an employee and you put them back in their department for two weeks for any length of time in any case, they're going to go in with a goal. And in his case, he's going in with a goal. Why? Because in the ancient days, managers lived on the estate. So he's not just losing his job, he's losing his housing. He's not just losing his housing, he's losing all of his food source. He's not just losing his food source, he's losing his reputation. He works in money management, and he's been accused of embezzlement. And apparently, it's well founded. So, verse three, he's got a reaction. It says, The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg. So we have a white-collar worker here who doesn't want to tie on an orange apron and say, good morning, welcome to Home Depot, right? Not interested in general labor work. He doesn't want to pick up the shovel that Home Depot sells because his hands are soft from years of counting money. So he's not used to hard work. Physical work is not his thing, let alone the status of a beggar. What can a man with soft hands do without a job in the first century, especially given the reality that his reputation is now destroyed in the community? He's not easily gonna find a good job and he's never gonna get a reference from this previous employer. Who would hire a money manager that's been accused of embezzlement? And he knows he's too out of shape to do manual labor. And he's too proud to sit on the street with a cardboard sign saying, I'll work for food. So he has no future unless, unless he can do something quick. He did not get to where he's at by being stupid. So he's going to use all of his managerial skills to come up with a very crafty plan. Go with me to the next verse, verse 4. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Now this phrase, I know what I shall do, it's accompanied by a Greek phrase that means, I've got it. And he comes up with a solution really, really quick. I know what I'm going to do in this something. He's got something like a sudden inspiration here. And his plan is very, very simple. While he still has authority, while he's still in his position preparing the books, he's gonna hold a fire sale on debt. So apparently, he's not just been misusing his employer's money. It appears we have someone here who's also been cooking the books in the background. You'll see that as we expand here. Go with me to verse 5. And he summoned each of one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, and he said, a hundred measures of oil. And by the way, that's olive oil in this case, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill. And sit down quickly and write 50." So he's very quick about this. He's going to put his plan into action. I'm very troubled as I read this that we have a person who's a money manager. He's actually the bookkeeper, and he doesn't actually know how much those people owe to his boss. So that should give you some insight into how bad this guy is as a money manager. He's trusting them to keep the books and tell him that gives you a little bit of insight what's going on here. So he's dealing with these debtors one by one because secrecy is essential in this case. So he's got a line of tenant farmers, and he calls all the tenant farmers in, and and the way the tenant farmer works is they work the land, and they raise a crop, and they share a part of the crop with the landowner, and they get a percentage themselves, and the landowner gets a percentage, and they, in some cases, can build up a debt. So as we read this, we understand this first one owns, owes 100 baths of oil. Batos is the Greek word, and it's where we get the word vat from in our language today. A bath or a batos was about nine gallons. So take nine and times it by his debt, he owes roughly 900 gallons of olive oil. That's the yield of 146 olive trees how do I understand that in my world today? That's three years of labor. Three years of my life I owe to that landowner. So you can see why he's anxious to come in and deal with this situation. The manager says to him, you owe 900? I'm going to cut that to 450. Now, the discount is huge and the deal is struck. This is a really significant debt. And he's saying, I'm gonna whack it in half and I want you to sit down and write the note out quickly. And apparently the guy that owes the money, he does so. And he doesn't ask any questions because he doesn't wanna know why. Why are you taking a year and a half off of my debt load? Why are you making it 450? He doesn't wanna know, he just wants to write it out. And that's what he does, sign the papers and get out. And then comes verse seven. And then he said to another, "'How much do you owe?' And he said, "'A hundred measures of wheat.' And he said to him, "'Take your bill and write eighty. So the second tenant owes a hundred cores of wheat, the word that's used there. We don't actually know how much a core is, but it appears to be somewhere around a bushel, twelve bushels in total per one. It comes out to 1,200 bushels of wheat that he owes what's 1,200 bushels of wheat in the first century? That's eight years of labor. Eight years of your life, and you've just been told you can take 20% off from that. It's a huge amount, and in his case, the debt is reduced to the degree that he can't sign the paper quickly enough and get out. Imagine tomorrow morning getting a call from someone who says, you know what I'm gonna do for you? I'm gonna pay off half of your mortgage. Would you not sign up for that quickly and not ask questions and say, I'll take that? Right? That's the enthusiasm that's going on behind this. Why the difference in the rate of reduction here? Why does one get a 50% discount and the other one get a 20% discount? Well, here's what Jesus is doing. I told you last week he's scary, smart. He's showing to you his understanding of the agricultural world. In the first century, in the agricultural world, olive oil was highly susceptible to damage. Even as it was being transported, it was easy to ruin it. So they had to be extra protective of it. That meant when money was loaned on olive oil, because it was such a high risk, it was loaned at a much higher interest rate. So this guy's been paying a high interest rate, and therefore he gets a huge deduction. Whereas wheat, it's not as susceptible to damage, and so therefore you don't have a high interest rate with it. But Jesus is just demonstrating to us his knowledge of ancient agriculture, and he's just throwing it into the midst of the story. Now that you and I have these units in our mind, and I told you those very specifically so that you would understand what's going on in the story, now that we have these units in mind, we need to understand the context of first-century Israel. How do we take that information and translate it back here, especially in the world of commercial business? Know this. In the first century, Jews are forbidden from loaning money to other Jews with an interest rate charged. They could loan money to people outside of their country, but within their nation, if a Jew loaned to a Jew, it was forbidden for them to charge any form of an interest rate. And everybody knows this. Everybody living in the first century understands that. It comes right from God's own word, from the book of Exodus, from the book of Leviticus, from the books of Deuteronomy. They had to function that way. So what do you do if you've got a lot of money and you wanna make interest on your money and you want to conduct business? Well, those who wanted to make money on their loans evaded the law by reasoning this way. Their thinking was, well, that law, God put that in place just to protect those who were really poor. That was his intention, so that we wouldn't exploit the poor. It wasn't meant to forbid innocent transactions. I want to be mutually beneficial. We want to have a working relationship with the people we loan money to. So the amounts that are shared in loans, we'll look at those as opportunities. here's what they did. If anyone was looked upon as having even a little commodity, like a jar of wheat or a container of oil, they were not considered to be poor by the loan sharks. They actually were considered to people who had commodities, so therefore, you're not poor. Thus, I'm not exploiting that one. Thus, the law doesn't apply to me. Well, almost everyone had a little bit of oil in their house or a little bit of wheat in their house. And thus, this opened up a very wide path for deviating from God's law and using it to the point where it became legal fiction. So whatever was borrowed from people in that century, during this period of time, when Jews borrowed from Jews, it was actually given a label of, well, you owe my master this much wheat, or you owe my master this much oil. They wouldn't actually put down what we would think of as monetary amounts, but they would put down commodity amounts. So the loan was written intentionally and designed for the repayment of the total plus interest, but it was written in terms of wheat or in terms of oil. And it actually became usury. we'll use the term that we use today in the 2020s, loan sharking. They were charging high interest rates, but the bond, it gave no indication whatsoever of it There was nothing in the writing of the note that indicated what that was. It was just a farming transaction. Now, it was not uncommon for these transactions to be executed by mid-level managers so that they could keep the landowner out of it. Not that the landowner didn't know what was going on, but he didn't want to appear to the community to be irreligious, as though he was ignoring God's laws. And so the middle manager was given the assignment to do what he did, but keep the owner of the property out of the actual transactions. Well, as this story develops, this parable is presenting us with this manager who's facing job loss and he wants to protect his future. So he's got to come up with a strategy by calling in the notes, but he calls them in with a twist. In order to modify it, he has the debtors re-sign new notes so they no longer carry these huge interest rates and he expects their gratitude, that's what he's gonna get in return when he's put out of his house, when he no longer has a place to live and he no longer has food to eat, he wants some payback. So here's what's just happened. He's put the owner of the property in a very difficult position. The owner of the property is gonna have a really hard time determining what did people originally owe me? What was the debt? The first bonds are gone, they've rewritten new bonds. And he can't repudiate the manager without convicting himself of usury because they always knew what was going on. It was like a wink, wink out the back door. We know you're charging, but don't tell me that you're charging. So if he repudiates his manager, he's gonna convict himself of immorality. So how does the landowner respond when he discovers his books have been cooked, the debts have been forgiven, people have had a great reduction, and now he's got a manager who's acted in a way that he didn't see coming. What does he do? Go with me to verse 8, part A. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. (laughs) What? Why? Why is Jesus telling this? That He acted shrewdly. He got praised? What is going on here? Why is Jesus telling this story this way? You'd think this landowner would be ticked. Why is he praising him? Well, because his plan is smart. First, this landowner ends up looking pretty good to the community. People who owed him large amounts of money all of a sudden want to do business with him again because he's a forgiving individual, and he's forgiven this high interest rate debt. So to the community, the owner of the property is looking pretty good. And for this manager, it assures him that people are now in an honor-bound society. They're bound to take care of him. We talked about this during the prodigal son. These stories are being told during a time of honor-shame. I do for you, you do for me. You don't do for me, you're shamed. You do for me, you're honored. There's reciprocation going on. Well, in an honor-shame society, they're bound to have to take care of this manager now. So the landowner is in an awkward position. If his manager has cleaned up the books and he eliminated this high interest rate, and this business owner, he repudiates him for these discount deals, he shows himself to be irreligious. And oppressive to the people of the community. So he calls him shrewd. You're a pretty smart guy. You worked out a deal for your benefit. Now, notice what's going on when Jesus tells us, especially as we get to this next part in part B. It's the shrewdness and the intelligence that Jesus compliments here. The guy is still a cheat, he's still a corrupt fiscal manager but it's his intelligence by which he goes about it that Jesus compliments him. He's acting quickly on his feet. This is a pretty well-devised plan. And, And Jesus appreciates the way that he's thinking. So Jesus follows it up by saying this in part B of verse eight, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Both the manager and the owner of the property have acted decisively and instinctively. They've been very strategic. And on the heels of that, Jesus says, the sons of this age, they are shrewd. They are more shrewd than, to their own kind than are the sons of light. Well, who's the sons of light? That's you and I. We're the disciples of Jesus if you're a believer in Jesus. Jesus. You're the sons and daughters of the kingdom of light. And Jesus says the people of the world, they're acting much more shrewd about their worldly resources than the people who belong to Jesus. So that particular verse is distinguishing who's in God's kingdom of light and who's not in God's kingdom of light. The people not in God's kingdom are the sons of this age. They're the unbelievers, but he says, they act very intentionally in ways to manage their money in ways to strategize for their future. They have investments of every kind. They're very deliberate about what they do, and they apply them intentionally and strategically. So Jesus says in an admonishing fashion, those individuals, they're much more shrewd than you are. Remember, he's got the disciples in front of him. That's who he's speaking to. We're the children of the light, not of darkness. So Jesus' point is this, the sons and the daughters of this world system, they have really intentional maneuverings about what they go about, whether they're honest or dishonest. They're going to do whatever it takes to accomplish their goal. So you see this in the world of politics. You see this in the world of finance. You see this in the world of justice slash injustice. You see this in the world of behavioral modification, in in other words, the way that society is manipulated. People who go about those things go about them very intentionally. So I'm going to use the word strategic because this is what Jesus is driving at. And if you think that part was scary, like surprising, watch where Jesus goes with this next verse, verse 9. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. You begin to see why Luke 16 is considered a really difficult passage to interpret. Did did I just hear what I think I heard Jesus say? Let me have you hear this again. Listen very carefully to this. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. If if you only read this on the surface, you're probably thinking right now, am I reading that right? I'm not sure where he's headed with this. Is Jesus telling me to buy friends? Is that what I'm hearing? Is he saying use money to buy people? people? We need to be really clear, we understand what's going on here. God is telling us to be sure that we should be as dedicated to living out the kingdom as the sons of this age are dedicated to living out their own values. So he says, you got to make the most use of your worldly resources. That's what's called the wealth of the unrighteousness. you, you got money in your wallet. you got money in your checking account. You've got money that's going to disappear one day. It's going to burn. Scripture says this is all going to burn one day. The wealth of the unrighteousness is the wealth that it just doesn't remain. It's not eternal. So he's talking about the money systems here. And he's saying we've got to be making good use of the world's resources. While the things of this world are fleeting and they are going to burn and they are going to disappear, we can recognize they can be used for good. Use them for good purposes. So hear this phrase again when Jesus makes the statement. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. What could he possibly mean by this? Well, let's go back to the parable. The manager has used his position very strategically to make sure that when he's out of a job, people are going to still welcome him into their homes. He's been very intelligent. He was praised for his shrewdness so that he knows when he's homeless and foodless, there's gonna be some friends who are gonna receive him and they're gonna take care of him. And Jesus follows it up by saying, make friends for yourself that way. He's saying, that's what the sons of this age have always done, be at least as shrewd as they are. Well, how do I understand that? This is the framework and the way that it's coming from here. Take the money that you might have, the wealth that you might possess, Little or a lot, whatever resources you have, and you can take it into eternity with you by storing up treasures in heaven. How in the world do I do that? By using it for kingdom purposes here. And Jesus simply uses the phraseology of buy friends for yourself. What does he mean by that? Use that wealth of unrighteousness that has no virtue in itself whatsoever, it's just money. Use that to influence people for the kingdom, investing in missions work, investing in parachurch work, investing in church work, investing in people who will expand the gospel, secure friends for heaven who will be standing at the door of eternity, your eternal dwelling place, waiting to receive you with welcome open arms. That's what he's driving at just as this manager has secured a future for himself and he's going to have a home to live in, Jesus is saying, when you step over heaven's threshold, when you step into heaven, there will be people waiting for you in eternity whom you've never met, but because you invested your earthly resources into the work of the kingdom, they're going to come running up to you and give you a big old bear hug and say, thank you. You played a role in me finding Jesus. You played a role in helping me step into eternity. One day, all these things that God has blessed you with, whether it's little or a lot, those things are no longer going to be available to you whatsoever. And Jesus is saying, use those things for the kingdom while you can. Because these temporary resources, they're going to be gone, but they can help prepare for you in eternity. How do I do that? Two words, be generous That's what Scripture's talking about, using your homes, using your cars, using your resources, using the money that you might have in the bank, specifically using it for legitimate needs. And Jesus says, in doing that, you're storing up treasures in heaven. God has given us the privilege of living in the most financially blessed nation on this planet. Would you agree with that? We have that privilege, have incredible wealth here. He's saying, you have so much more than what you understand. You can be using that for kingdom purposes. So in this parable, the the grateful debtors, the ones who had their debt cut in half, they're going to be welcoming that manager into their home saying, man, you really helped me. You really set me up well. Well, Jesus has constructed this story for this very reason. He's saying, there's a day coming when you're going to be welcomed into your eternal home. There's a day coming when this is all going to burn, when it's all going to be gone, and these material resources will no longer be of any value to you. And you can't take it with you. But Jesus is saying in a very real way, yes, you can. Yes, you can take it with you by investing in people, by investing in people for eternity, because waiting to embrace you on the other side will be those with whom you shared these temporary resources. So he closes it with three very simple thoughts. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. Let's just hit them real quickly. Verse 10, he who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. That's a very simple statement, but so true. And you might be listening to this and think, maybe this parable doesn't really apply to me because I don't have much, Mark. And maybe there's a temptation for you to be thinking, I have no great worldly resources to share. Remember who Jesus is talking to? He's got a bunch of poor fishermen in front of him. I promise you what you have in the United States today is wealth beyond anything that they could have ever dreamed of. People living in the first century couldn't imagine the things that we have available to us today. You own more than they could have ever conceived of. So no matter how few resources you have, Jesus is saying, be trustworthy with that. And it's only as you practice the habit of generosity with the resources that you do have, he can trust you with more. He can compound that. He trusts you with more. And that habit, that habit of being generous and trusting God will continue to be more trustworthy. It'll prove that you're more trustworthy no matter how high the value of the resources that you own. After a a lifetime of walking with God, I've come to this conclusion. I came to faith in Christ when I was 14 years of age. And, And here at this age where I'm more than 40 now, I am more than 40. I've come to this conclusion. Faithfulness is no accident. You don't stumble into faithfulness. It's a discipline. Faithfulness on our part towards the things that God has trusted us with, it arises out of who we are. So as we show ourselves faithful in little things, God says, you can be trusted with big things. What you do with the small things in life, it's reflected in what you will do with the large things. So verse 11, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? It's a reminder for us. The money that's in your checkbook right now, Whatever might be sitting in the armrest of your car, whatever balance you might have on your debit card, it's not really yours. We think it is, but it's God's. Everything we have on this planet is God's. He owns it all. Say amen if you agree with that. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, scripture says, many times over. He created it all, it's all His. We don't own it, we're just stewards of it. So Jesus says this in verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, he's the another, who will give you that which is your own? Just leaving an open-ended question. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, and that's just the money that you happen to possess, If you've not been faithful in that, and he's talking to believers now, he's talking to the sons of light, who will entrust you with the true? That's the way it actually reads in the Greek. What's the true? The true rewards mean the spiritual blessings. If you haven't spent your money wisely, how are you going to ever be part of leading people into the kingdom, investing wisely? He's just asking an open-ended question here. So... Thirteen, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's the end of it. That's how he ends it. He says, take your choice. It's God or it's money. One or the other is going to have your allegiance. That verse 13 is really famous. But most people misunderstand what's going on there. In Jesus' day in the first century, you could be owned by two masters. If you had a debt to someone, you could actually sell yourself for a year, two years, three years, 10 years. And the money that you gained from selling yourself into slavery, you could take and put against a debt or you could give it to your family so they could buy certain things. People did this all the time. They'd sell themselves into temporary slavery. And if they had a lot of debt, they would sell themselves to two masters. But what if one of the masters wants you to go in one direction and pick up a sack of flour? And what if the other master wants you to go in the opposite direction and get a new mule? who are you going to listen to? The one that you have the most allegiance to. You're going to go to the one that you want to serve most. Jesus is saying you can't have two. You're going to love one, or you're going to hate the other, and it actually means to lower. You're going to put one in a lower level. And they use the language here, you're going to despise or hate the other one. You can really only listen to one. You're either going to be driven by attaining wealth, or attaining to the kingdom, which one is it? You must focus. It must be deliberate, strategic, intentional. Jesus' arrival on this planet forces people to decisions in every category of their life. You've seen that throughout the parables over and over again. None the least of which is this one that you've seen today. Jesus' argument is this. Even worldly people know how to make strategic decisions regarding the use of their time and their talents. What about you? Where are you in that? How much more should those who belong to Jesus? You might be thinking, "How, how can I be more strategic? How can I do that? Let me follow that up right after closing with this verse right here from Matthew. Matthew 6, 19 says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. It finishes this way, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I was to say that in our language today, I would say where your treasure is, that's where you're gonna invest that's where you're gonna put it. Where your heart is dedicated to, that's where you're gonna invest. So let me challenge you. Invest in parachurch work that is advancing the cause of the kingdom. Those that are explaining the gospel, those that are teaching teachers to teach the gospel. Works like what William and Marilyn are doing through Salt and Light Global. Invest in the church, churches, that are actually expanding the kingdom, that are teaching people the word of God, that are leading to people to faith in Christ. Invest in those kind of deliberate kingdom activities. And Jesus says, people are going to approach you in eternity, and they're going to put a big old wet one on your cheek, and they're going to say, welcome home. I'm here because of your investments. Thank you for helping me escape hell. Thank you for helping me get here. So Jesus says that's what you do with your resources if you're thinking shrewdly and strategically about the kingdom of God. And when you get there, as Michael said earlier, there will be a party in heaven welcoming you home. Let me pray with you, New Hope. Father, I thank you for the reality of what you've promised us, not only that we're gonna be there as believers, that we get to enjoy eternity with you, But there's rewards waiting, and these rewards are based on how we act here on this planet. So, God, you've given us a responsibility, and we recognize that this morning, even more so now, 20 minutes more than we did 20 minutes ago. There's a pressure on us now, and I pray, Father, that that would not easily be let up, that you would stay with us through the power of the Holy Spirit as we take on this week, and we begin thinking about the reality of the investments that we have the things that we are invested in. Thank you, Father, for the privilege. Thank you for trusting us. And pray, Father, that the trust you've put in us would be well-founded, and that we're not just buying more gadgets, but that we're actually putting friends in eternity. Father, I pray now that you would send us out with your blessing, a greater blessing than money. Send us out with your peace, and with your strategy in our mind. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.